the weightiness of what we do each Sunday is significant. I want to bring the word to you as if it's the last time I'm going to preach, and I want you to hear it as if it is the last time you're going to hear it. My assumption of those who go to this church is that you are serious about the word of God, or at least trying to learn more of the words, know more about Jesus. You did not come here for fluff. You did not come here to be entertained. You come here to get in the word, and we're going to get to it. Let's ask the Lord to be with us right now. Let's pray. Father, your word is eternal. When you speak, we want to hear. Sometimes we come in here all jammed up with sin. We come in here distracted, and we just ask that in the midst of all our issues and troubles and struggles, that you would speak your truth to us. Pray for the couple that's in here right now who got into a fight, or several couples who got into a fight with one another before they came to church. I just ask that you would speak your grace and your mercy to them. I pray for the man or the men in here who have been struggling this weekend with foolishness. I ask that you would speak your truth of forgiveness and love to them. I pray for the women in here who perhaps may uh, be going through bouts of discouragement or depression or whatever may be happening. I just ask you to speak your truth to them. All of us, Lord, we are fallen, we are broken, and we need your gospel. We need your truth. And we ask that you would speak it now this morning and that we would hear and that we would respond in a way that glorifies you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the day when I first started preaching, I was a pastor in Santa Monica, California, and I would preach uh, sermons that were special for special Sundays. So I would be preaching a Mother's Day message, I'd preach a Father's Day message, I'd preach a Palm Sunday message, an Easter message, and several Advent Christmas messages. I'd be preaching a Thanksgiving message, a Right to Life special Sunday. There was a Missions Emphasis Sunday. And after on and on and on, uh, the problem I had was making it through books of Bible before a special Sunday would pop up and I'd have to stop, acknowledge the special Sunday through a sermon, and I couldn't make it through a book of the Bible. And so I decided that um, I was going to stop that. And so now if you go to Evanston Bible Fellowship, you'll barely get an Easter message and you will get a Christmas message. That will be the extent of the special Sundays. If you want an example, if you showed up for Mother's Day looking for a Mother's Day message, we preached on David and Goliath. So there you go. So we basically just preach through the Bible, and whatever comes up, comes up, and you just have to deal with it. But there was one special Sunday I used to preach on as I was going through the Bible, a special Sunday that I would emphasize, and it is coming up here this morning, and I'm going to talk about it the whole time. What I used to talk about uh, once a year is about the persecuted church. The persecuted church. And we tend to have a text this morning that lends itself to such a focus. And when we think about the persecuted church, we kind of think about something that is irrelevant, something we do not think about. We know that it's out there, and yet we don't talk about it too often because, I don't know, it doesn't meet our, our, our felt needs or whatever. But it's important to God's heart and should be important to the heart of God's people. So this morning, we're going to think about our brothers and sisters around the world who are undergoing serious persecution for their faith and how we as a body of a Christ can identify with them. That's where we're going. So hold on. Let's go for it. Let's go. 1 Samuel chapter 22 is where we're going to be. 1 Samuel 22. We are in a section of 1 Samuel. Uh, it may be confusing for you where we're at. If you're just showing us, but I'll make it simple. David, King David, is on the run. He's not yet on the throne yet. He is on the run. 
King Saul wants to kill him, and he can't find safe haven anywhere. He tries to find safety at his house with his wife. Nope. He runs away. He tries to find safety with a prophet, Samuel. Nope. He's still fleeing from Saul. He goes to his good friend, Jonathan, for safety. He cannot find safety. Saul is out to kill him no matter where he goes. Now, the chapter before, in chapter 21, it started out, David went to Nob. And as he was in the city of Nob, he interacted with a priest called Ahimelech who gave him bread and Goliath's sword. Unfortunately, one of Saul's hitmen, Doug the Edomite, was there. And since the encounter at Nob, David has bopped around looking for shelter and safety from the wrath of King Saul. So the way I want to organize it this morning is I'm I'm just trying to get you some categories to think through. So think through these categories with me. I'll put them up for you. We're going to get some perspective. We're going to get some talk about persecution. And then we're going to think about protection. Uh, So these are the three P's, and I want to give you one more P, and that would be the concept of prayer that's going to override and be throughout all of this. So perspective, persecution, protection, and prayer. We're going to talk about all four of those. So let's start with perspective, and it's this. In some way, shape, or form, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there's going to be some experience of suffering that you're going to have in your life for your faith. I don't know what it's going to look like. But if you're a believer, chances are you're going to experience some form of suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're trying to be a Christian and you are expecting no pushback and you're trying to navigate a culture without having any conflict for being a Christian, then chances are that is not going to happen. If you are a believer you're going to experience some form of persecution or pushback, whatever it may be. And and the different degrees will will mean something different for those who are in America for now or those who are in a different another country, that Christians are going to be targets of the enemy. And this persecution goes all the way back to the Old Testament, hence our text today. Let's dive in to our story as Saul is still after David. 1 Samuel 22, starting in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. He always has a spear. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? that all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul's paranoid. He's charging his own men with conspiring with David and being in secret cahoots with Jonathan who vowed his allegiance to David behind Saul's back. Sarcastically, he asked his men, so tell me, men, is David going to give you fields? Is he going to give you jobs? No. Then why in the world are you conspiring with him? And why are you trying to protect him and making so little effort to bring him down? Verse 9. Then answered Doug the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, 
to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. We talked about this in chapter 21. Doug speaks up. He says he's seen David at Nob and the priest prayed for him, gave him food and gave him Goliath's sword. So Saul hears this, he moves to action, and he summons the priest Ahimelech. And the rest of his family appears before the king to give an answer. Stick with it. Here we go. Verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? In his paranoia, he confronts the priest, and he wants to know why he has conspired against him. Ahimelech gets defensive and responds. Verse 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of his father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Ahimelech pushes back and he says, Look, ma'am, there's no conspiracy here. He's treated David like he's always treated David. David's a respected leader in Saul's court. David is Saul's faithful servant. He's the son-in-law of Saul, captain over the bodyguard, and honored in Saul's house. There is no conspiracy. Ahimelech is saying, look, I'm just helping David because I thought he was your man. I thought he was your dude, your right-hand guy. I've done nothing wrong. And yet what we're going to see in a moment is this priest, along with his family, are going to be killed. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and do a little theological perspective, thinking through the Bible. What is going on behind these attacks where Saul is about to kill the priest? I would say that the enemy behind the attack of Ahimelech and his family is the same one behind the attacks on you, and Christians around the world. I would say the same enemy is aimed at you and Christians around the world. The Bible is very clear from 1 Peter. I'm going to leave this passage up a while. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the concept here is that the devil is a a roaring lion out to devour believers. I believe he was just as active in the Old Testament, working through Saul to go after Ahimelech. And when you experience the attacks and temptations of the enemy, you're to remember that your brothers and sisters around the world are being attacked as well. So here's the deal. When you hear about brothers and sisters around the world who are getting their heads cut off for their faith, getting kicked out of their homes, losing their jobs, their churches are being burned, don't think that what you're hearing coming from the other side of the world has nothing to do with you. And when you are distressed and dismissed for your faith, 
when someone disregards you for believing in Jesus or makes fun of you, don't think that has nothing to do with your brothers and sisters around the world. Because here's the concept. We are the family of God. We are believers in Jesus Christ, whether we live in America, Africa, Russia, wherever we live, we are a family of believers. And as a family of believers, we have one enemy that is against us. Satan and his demons are out to attack us. And we need to know that it's not a flesh and blood battle, but it's a battle against the roaring lion, Satan and his demons. So when you think about our brothers and sisters killed in a church in Charleston by a shooter motivated by race and hate, don't think that behind that is not Satan attacking the church. We have a common enemy. He's out to kill Christians. He's out to destroy Christians here and abroad. And this perspective should make you pray. So when you hear about something happening overseas, it has something to do with you. And when something comes aimed at you, that has to do with your brothers and sisters overseas because we are a family, and it should make you pray. And when we experience smaller sufferings for being a Christian, it should make us pray for them as well. I want to say one more thing on perspective because I really want you to have the right perspective especially as most of you are currently uh, living here in this land. I know some of you are, are visiting from overseas right now. But I want you to listen to this. Here's the perspective. In our culture right now in America, the pushback for being a Christian is slight. It is slight. Because we're here right now. Right? I'm sitting with you preaching the word. No one's messing with us. I don't see any bombs and no one's ready to kill or shoot me right now. It's slight. But perhaps in the future, I don't know, it, it may build. And I know there, there's, there's something that happened this past week on Friday. The Supreme Court legalized the so-called gay marriage. And, 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 and just, just, just so you know, their decision is not going to change anything that we believe and the word of God about marriage between a man and woman in our church, no way is that going to mess with anything that we, what we believe. We're, we're, not, we're not budging at all. But keep this in mind. This clash of beliefs that is in our culture may take slight pushback against the church and may push it, push it, push it, and push it. It might. I don't know. It might. But I want you to know this. If it leads down the road of, okay, we lose our tax-exempt status, all right. Uh, what do they say? Well, I can't even meet anymore. It's illegal to meet. I don't, I don't know where it's going, but I want to say this. Be careful right now as a Christian in the words that you use. I don't want us to overreact and claim persecution in our land to the highest degree because I don't want to minimize right now our brothers and sisters that are getting their heads cut off. So when we face slight pushback, whatever you want, the terminology you want to use, it should make us think about the bigger family of God for now, and it should make us pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world. And in our country, it may ramp up in the future, but right now when we face pushback, be thinking, okay, brothers and sisters around the world are arrested right now, and some of them are on trial to be killed. We need to be interceding and praying for them because we're one big family of God. This is the perspective I want us to have, a bigger perspective. It's not just about us. We've got a world going on here of believers. So let's move on to the second P of persecution. This is where it gets violent. It's where it gets messy. 
Look at Saul's paranoia getting the best of him. Look at verse 16. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also was with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Most of them know, don't mess with these priests. They're innocent, and they're not, they don't want to shed innocent blood. So Saul turns to his hitman, Doug the Edomite. Look at verse 18. Then the king said to Doug, you turn and strike the priest. And Doug the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, Ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So Doug goes on a slashing, killing spree. He wipes out 85 priests, men, women, children, infants, and even animals. And what's interesting to me is that Saul authorized this. But if you notice, for those of you who have been tracking with us, remember back in chapter 15 when God told Saul to wipe out the pagan village and he refused to, to follow through and wipe out the whole village? And now here he is killing everyone of his own people? Amazing. As a little side note here, this passage fulfills the prophecy of wiping out Eli's line mentioned back in Samuel 2 due to the disobedience of Eli's sons. Yet if you read the context, the blame lies with the evil heart of Doug, Saul, and ultimately the devil himself. An enemy that we see here is the enemy that is active today. And did you know since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 43 million Christians, give or take, have been martyred. 43 million have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. There's a ministry called Christians in Crisis. He reports that right now as we're worshiping here in freedom, 200 million face persecution for being Christian. But for the most part, I will wake up tomorrow and I will not think about the persecuted church. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, make you feel weird or anything, but when's the last time you thought about the persecuted church? When's the last time you prayed for the persecuted church? When's the last time you was even on your radar to have any idea about what is happening to our brothers and sisters around the world? And so I don't want to make you feel guilty. Occasionally, we think about it when we hear about the attacks of ISIS or Boko Haram, but On the whole, the idea of a persecuted church is out of sight, out of mind. And yet, the persecution of Christians is something that happens every day. And I would say it's happening somewhere in our world right now. And it should be a part of our reality. So the question is, how can we keep it at the forefront of our prayers? I am only going to give you suggestions on things I think you can actually do. I'm going to set the bar so low because if you set your goals low enough, you can meet them every time. So this is really low goal setting of ways that I want you to keep the persecuted church before you. In fact, I'm going to give you opportunities to do it right now. So if you are on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, you can get your phone out right now. I'm going to put two organizations up. These organizations, uh, Open Doors USA and Voice of the Martyrs, you can follow them, friend them, whatever it's called, whatever you need to do, and make them show up in your daily feed. And I, it, can, it can give your life 
weightiness. So as you're going through your feed and you're looking at all the goofy jokes that your friends are sending you and all that other silly stuff, the trivialities of this life, you can see in your feed that there are brothers and sisters being killed, imprisoned, churches burned, and that can be a part of your daily life. For those of you who are not on uh, social media, you can, you can subscribe to these. They'll send you print materials in the mail. But it gives your life weightiness when you're thinking through of what's happening to your brothers and sisters around the world. For example, this is a few of them I've seen recently. They asked for prayer for a pastor in Nigeria who's had his church bombed twice. They asked for prayer for a brother in Central Asia who's been exposed by uh, a Muslim community as a convert from Islam to Christianity and now he's a target. They're asking for prayer and wisdom and protection. You can sign a petition to appoint an envoy to monitor religious freedom in Sudan where believers are on trial for their lives. I saw another one that said, pray for a pastor in Sri Lanka who was abducted after receiving fake pleas for prayer. He was kidnapped. And of course, you see the most famous one out now is to continue to pray for uh, our brother in the Lord, a pastor who was held in an Iranian jail. This past week, I saw a Christian mom of 11. She was poisoned by, uh, in Uganda by a Muslim, uh, one of her Muslim in-laws. Poisoned her and killed her because she was a convert uh, from Islam to Christianity. This is, this is something that's going on all the time. And, 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 and I, I think it should be part of our, our mindset that being a believer is, is some serious business where you can be killed in many parts of the world. And I think it should be before us, part of our prayers, something that we're seeing daily in, in our feed, on our social media. And it's something I think we should pass on to our kids as well, that we should tell our kids, and I have no problem telling my kids, if you follow Jesus, you may get pushback. In fact, if you follow Jesus, there may come a time where you will be killed. And there are children and families where they are being persecuted around the world. And I think it's okay to tell our kids about that. And they've actually, there's some great material out there to share with them. One of them is called Window on the World. It's a wonderful book you can read with your kids to show them the persecution that's happening in different parts of the world. One of my favorites is Dispatches from the Front, a DVD series. It's amazing of what God is doing around the world and yet how, how the pushback is coming and the persecution is happening. I think the reality of our brothers and sisters around the world should be a part of our lives to some extent in our prayers and our perhaps even advocacy. Because wouldn't we want someone praying for us if we were going through the same thing? Wouldn't we want someone advocating for us if we were going through the same thing? These are our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted. Well, let's finish up, and we're going to finish up really strong here, and it's the concept of protection. We are told that one of Ahimelech's sons escaped and found refuge with David. It's not all of them were slaughtered. One got away. Look at verse 20. Finish up here. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathur, escaped and fled after David. And Abathur told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And Saul said to Abathur, I knew on that day when Doug the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. 
David realizes that the death of Ahimelech and his family were just collateral damage as Saul ultimately wants David dead. David feels bad about this, and he reassures this guy, Abathur, that he will be safe with David. And what you see, once again, is God's continuing to protect David. And he's also protecting some of those who take refuge with David. In fact, it's common today. There will always be believers who are spared. There will always be a remnant who is not martyred, who will still exist under the protective hand of God. But at the same time, we need to know that all of those who are killed, who are martyred, are protected in the eternal hand of God. So I can say to you right now, as a believer, there is nothing you need to ultimately fear because in the Lord, you cannot die. Yes, you'll die physically, but you can be safe in the forever clutch of God. Jesus even speaks this way about this eternal security of the believer in Matthew 10, 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The worst that someone can do to you is destroy your body, but they have no ability to send you to hell if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus says this in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Trouble will be the lot for believers. This will be your lot in life. But in Jesus Christ, there is ultimate and lasting victory forever. And the last verse I want to share comes from Revelation. This is a key one, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So even though there's going to be this persecution in this life, those who cling to Christ will live forever. I know we think sometimes in our evangelism effort, we say to people, look, if you just become a believer, you'll be so happy in life and everything will go great with you. How about this for an evangelism technique? If you become a believer, you're going to live forever, but you may be killed tomorrow for your faith. There's something about this eternal security, and I'm using it different than the way you tend to think about this eternal security safe in the hands of God no matter what persecution may come. And this this idea of this eternal protection should stir every single person up into gospel risk. And you may ask yourself, why should you take a risk as a believer? Why should you take a risk to share your faith as a believer? And this is why. There is no other way for someone on this earth to go to heaven and be with God forever except through Jesus Christ. And perhaps you think there is another way. And if you think there's another way, then you will not risk your life. But if it's true, which I think it is, and if Jesus is legit, which I think he is, and he really lived this perfect life, really died, and for real came back to life, never to die again. You better listen to that guy. And we proclaim as believers that the, that the only way for someone to be saved, you may, may mock the sa- salvation, saved terminology. What do we mean? Saved from what? We mean saved from hell. We mean saved from wrath. That he was on the cross bearing wrath 
in the place of sinners. And now the, the message we proclaim is that guess what? You as a sinner can be reconciled to God through faith. And I'm going to risk my reputation. I'm going to risk my life to tell you that someone loves you. Came, someone came on a rescue mission for you. And if you want to make fun of me or mock me or kill me, I'm still going to tell you. Why risk it all? Because the gospel is true. Because Jesus is legit. Because there's no other way to be saved apart from Jesus Christ. We have a family that used to sit where you're sitting. They went overseas, proclaimed the gospel. They got kicked out of their country. They came back to this country. And I'm thinking, man, you did a great job there for several years before you got kicked out. Man, just come live, sit, put your kids in American schools here. In, this is great. Just relax. You did your thing. No! They regroup, go back to another hard country to proclaim the gospel. We have a girl sitting where you used to sit. She is overseas and she's, she's hearing about the, where the, the terrorists are hitting and bombing. And she's like, oh, I want to go there. And then she comes back to America to regroup. And I'm thinking, okay, time to settle down. Boy, you've done your job. You were over there in the hardest parts of the world bringing the gospel. Chill out. Go spend time with your family. Stay here. Nope. Regroup. Get things together. Let's go again, again, and again. Why would you do that? Why would you risk your life? Oh, the gospel's real. Jesus is legit. He's worth it. You want to see people saved. And then two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I'm talking to another girl sitting where you've been sitting, right where you're at. I said, okay, now, now you've graduated from Northwestern, like yesterday when I talked to her. What are you going to do now? And she said, well, I'm about to go and be a missionary in this certain region. And when someone in this church tells me they're about to be a missionary in a certain region, that means they can't tell me where they're going because it's not safe for them to go there. So why would a girl who just cranked out a degree at Northwestern, one of the best universities in the world, make a decision to go and risk her life on the mission field where she could be killed? Why would she do that? Why do we have so many people in our church in the past who have done that? What are they thinking? Didn't they teach you anything at that school? The gospel's real. Jesus is real. The only way for people to be reconciled to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And the only way they're going to know about Jesus is if someone goes and tells them it's worth the risk. And there's some of you here. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, God's stirring me to go. I'm kind of scared. I'm kind of freaking out. Maybe I don't want to go. And maybe he's stirring you to go. But regardless of whether you go or not, I think that the risk of opening our mouths and sharing the gospel with others, even here, is worth it. You'll face pushback. You'll face criticism in our country. But when you do, you are identifying with some extent with the persecuted troops who are losing their job, being martyred for their faith, but they and us are ultimately safe in the eternal hands of God. So I've been asking myself, 
over the years, what should I do for the persecuted church? What should you do for the persecuted church? You want to know, what should we do for them? And I've come across two pastors. One of them is in New York, and one of them is in California. And they say, what we should do, I think they mean specifically pastors here in America, is pastors here in America should go and visit believers who are in jail around the world. And perhaps that's what we should be doing. Matthew 25 speaks of that. But at the same time, the pushback to that is that when pastors arrive over there to visit these believers in jail, once the pastors leave, the persecution of that person who's in jail gets amped up significantly. So we can talk about the merits, the downsides of doing that, and I'm, I'm open to talk about a lot of things. But if you ask persecuted Christians around the world, what do you want us to do for you? What do you want the church in America to do for you? What do you want? The number one thing they will say over and over and over again is, please pray for us. And us being good, practical Americans think, well, what, what good's prayer going to do? We want to do something, right? Once again, we're missing it, right? They're asking us to pray for them, to intercede for them. That is action. We're asking God and petitioning God to do something, to move. And we tend to see that in the Bible, that when the believers pray, God often intervenes in miraculous ways. So I want to end today by praying for our brothers and sisters around the world. I have put a suggested prayer in the back of your bulletin. I am going to follow that format in praying. But as we identify with our brothers and sisters around the world, we are going to pray for them right now. So let's go ahead and bow and pray. Lord, we are not here as those who are trying to feel guilty because we're not experiencing a certain amount of persecution. We are here praying for our brothers and sisters. We pray that our brothers and sisters would know that you love them and you have not abandoned them. Even today, as they are gathering in worship services, many of them in secret, underground, they would know that you love them and you have certainly not abandoned them. Pray that our brothers and sisters would stand firm in the faith and be bold in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the zeal and the aggressiveness of opening their mouths and proclaiming the reconciling truth of Jesus would be legit. And in places where false gospels and prosperity gospels have replaced the true gospel, have watered down your truth, Lord, I just ask that your truth rooted in your gospel would come forth, boldness and zeal. Pray that our brothers and sisters who are kicked out of their families for their faith would find refuge in the church, the family of God, that they would find new brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers that they would find a new family of those who surround them and encourage them and build them up and care for them, protect them from not just the widow and the orphan, but the one who's lost their job, this one who's lost their family. May you intervene in their lives. And I pray that our brothers and sisters would have financial provision in the forms of jobs and homegrown pastors and missionaries would be sustained and supported. The gospel ministry would continue on and the practical ministry of someone being able to work to put food on the table. Lord, I just ask, big time, God, I ask with 
everything that I have and that we have, that we would, that you would intervene, that you would move with provision, grace, sustaining, and gospel power in significant ways, that you would protect and prosper. And may the gospel go forth around the world for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.